it's a great joy for me to look at the word together with you on this Aldersgate Sunday. If you were there last evening, we looked at Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 to 11 on renewal by embracing the mind of Christ. Today, we are going to look at the first two verses of that same chapter. Chapter 2 starts with a so. <laughs> so, if there is any encouragement in Christ. So means it's connected to chapter 1, especially verses 27 onwards, which says several things. Uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, later he says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So anyway, Paul's great burden is that the church is living a life worthy of the gospel. And this burden continues as we come to chapter 2, which is a stirring appeal to the church to be one in aim or direction along with the other members of the congregation. This oneness is so crucial for a church to be on fire for God and the gospel. So in verse 1, Paul says four things which are foundational. It is the foundation in which such unity can blossom. This foundation is at the heart of what John Wesley himself experienced all those years ago in a society on Aldersgate Street. The first thing Paul says is so if there is any encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in who Christ is or on what he has done for us. Some translations would have uh, encouragement in being united with Christ. The word here can also mean consolation, the word for encouragement, consolation or comfort. Encouragement is needed by all, especially those who are discouraged. So I thought of looking at two important aspects of what Jesus did for us on the cross. These two aspects are highlighted in Isaiah's vision of God in Isaiah 6, where he sees God sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, with the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. What's interesting is in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41, John quotes a section from Isaiah 6 and then says in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Isaiah, who was probably the holiest person in Israel at that time, sees the holiness of God and recognizes the greatness of his own sin. And he says, Woe is me! For I am lost. Woe is me. That's almost like saying, curse be upon me. Uh, and then what happens is one of these seraphim, these flying creatures in the presence of God, using tongues, he takes, uh, he brings some coal, burning coal from an altar and touches Isaiah's lips. The coals in a temple altar were often covered by blood blood of a recently slaughtered lamb. As you know, these lambs foreshadowed the ultimate lamb of God, Jesus. So as the coal touches Isaiah's lips, the seraphim says two things, which are two crucial things that happen on the cross. 
The first is, your guilt is taken away. Or some translations say, your guilt is removed. Guilt is first and foremost a state of being. It's not just a feeling. It's a status given to us. The state of being a wrongdoer. A state deserving punishment. Yet, Jesus entered into that state. For one who is spotless, this would have been unbearable. In other words, our guilt is transferred to Christ. And now our guilt is removed. There was an American psychiatrist called Carl Menninger, who along with his brother, opened a chain of psychiatrist hospitals uh, in America. Carl Menninger said something very interesting. He said, if today the patients in my hospital know that their sins are forgiven, many of them will leave hospital right away. So many Christians, even mature, struggle with guilt or the feelings of guilt that comes from a result of being guilty. I wish I never said those things to her. I wish I had cared for him more. I wish I never looked at those things. I wish I had been more sensitive to her. I wish I never did those things with that person. Guilt becomes a heavy burden for us to carry. But the truth of the gospel is that your guilt is taken away. Jesus became guilty for the things that you and I have done. Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as from the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. On May 24, 1738, John Wesley went very unwillingly to a society on Aldersgate Street. In the society, someone was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. John Wesley later writes, About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. For salvation. And then he says, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine. The second thing the seraphim told Isaiah is also very important aspect of what happened on the cross. He said, your guilt is removed. And then he said, your sin atoned for. Atoning has the idea of cleansing. There was a young Christian man who wanted to get married to his Christian fiance when he realized that she had lived a very immoral life. She had been sleeping around with different people, but now she, she is a Christian. And so now he was struggling. And then he remembered the gospel and his wife had embraced this gospel. He remembered she may have done all these things but before God, she is a virgin. She has done all these things with other men. But now, before God, she's a virgin. 
Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 1 John 1.7, which we looked at, His blood cleans us from all sin. 1 Corinthians 6.11, Such were some of you, he, he talks about all these terrible things the Corinthians did, and he said, Such were some of you, but you were washed. One of my favorite passages is in Hebrews 8.12, I will remember their sins no more. Friends, in faith, we must embrace this beautiful truth. There is now no, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are now the righteousness of God. Embrace it and by faith, believe it. Be encouraged by all that Christ has done for you. So the first thing Paul tells the Philippians is, so if there's any encouragement in Jesus. And then he says, if there's any comfort from love. Comfort is for those who are sorrowful. And there's comfort in love. One of the hardest things in my work is to help new believers, or even sometimes mature Christians, truly believe that God really loves them. Jesus labored hard to help people understand the love of God. In Luke 15, he tells the story about the prodigal son, which you know so well, uh, how the, this boy wanted his inheritance. He took it, he went to a far, far away land and he spent all of it. And the brother later says, you know, he was with prostitutes. And then, you know, there was a famine and he was down to nothing. He was feeding pigs and he was wishing he could eat the food that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Then he remembered his father's home. And he, he prepared a three-point speech to tell his father. And he heads home. In verse 20 of Luke 15, Jesus says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Now Jesus goes into detail to give us a glimpse of the love of the Father. What does this Father do? He runs. Now, well, the old men and that culture, they used to wear long robes. And it was a shame, shameful thing for old men to run. Perhaps even in our own culture. Now the Father would have to raise his robe and run to the Son. And not only that, he embraces the Son he kisses the son. These are the words that Jesus uses. The son wanted to return as a hired servant. That was the third point in his speech that he had prepared. But it's not there. I mean, it's like the father didn't let him say it. In fact, the father shouts to his servants who tell and tells them, kill the fattened calf, uh, bring the best robe for my son, not servant, my son was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And they began to have a big party. In my youth, uh, when I was struggling with a sin, and I was so discouraged, and I sent a message, a text message to my father. And I told my father, I am a slave. And my father replied with a text message. And he said, you are a son. Capital S-O-N, he had written. Um, the more I realize this truth, 
the more I was able to stay away from things that were below me. You know, once my son, when he was uh, around maybe one year old, uh, when he would do something wrong, we would give him a small punishment by putting him in, into the cot. And so one day he did something and we put him in the cot and he was so upset. He was looking at my eyes and he was crying and tears were coming and he was weeping as he was looking at me. And then I realized that he was sorry and I, I, I took him. I took him with my arms and when I took him, he held me by my neck tight and then I held him tight. I wanted him to know that whatever he does, he will always be my son and I will always love him. When we return to God, we return to God as a son and a daughter. Never forget that. Karl Barth, he was perhaps the greatest theologian of the last century. Uh, he wrote a systematic theology which was about, I think, 5,000 pages long, a lot of, very deep. Uh, someone asked him, what is the greatest theological thought that has come to your mind? And, you know, people are very excited to hear what he said. And then he said it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is why Paul, when writing to the Ephesians in chapter 3, he says, I, I bow my knees and I'm praying to the Father that you may have strength to comprehend with everyone, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So that's the first thing Paul says. The second thing, if there's any comfort from love. And then he says, any participation in the Spirit. Now these are astounding and amazing spiritual truths about how we as a body through the Spirit are united with Christ. Now, there are things that happen in the spiritual realm that are not visible to our eyes. The Bible says that we were crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20 That we were buried with Him. Colossians 2.12 And now we are united with Him in His resurrection. Romans 6, 5. Now we are together one body in the resurrected Christ. 1 Corinthians 12. In, and 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We are one. And we will talk more about this a little later. And then Paul says the fourth thing. Any affection and sympathy. If there's any affection and sympathy, uh, this could be rendered as tenderness and compassion. Some translations would say tender mercy and compassion. Here it's talking primarily about the affection of God. How he delights in us. Uh, Zephaniah 3.17 uh, says, uh, well, you know, when we worship God, we are all singing loud songs to God. But in Zephaniah 3.17 says, God is looking us and singing loud songs over us. Once there were two boys who came to my house to watch a match. We had just moved into this new house and I was a bit nervous about the neighbours. And we were watching a cricket match where Sri Lanka was playing. And whenever Sri Lanka would get a wicket, 
these boys would be just shouting and you know i told them just be quiet you know we had just moved into this house but you know they couldn't control themselves when the wicket went they would just shout and scream and here what is said is that god is looking at us and shouting he's so delighted over us this is the first time in my life when i experienced the tenderness of god um one of, i think it was the first time i was around 13 i went for this camp uh, teenagers camp and i was a very shy boy i could hardly speak and i was in in, in front of girls i was a disaster um, you know i i would get my feet would start shaking and um, so one day you know i saw this girl and she was you know beautiful <laughs> and one day i had to you know go to this hall i think and i had to walk past her and i was now getting very nervous because i had to walk past her and uh, so i started walking and i and i think what happened was you know normally you walk like this but i think what happened to me was my left hand and my left leg went together and my right hand and and i think i i made a fool of myself i was so upset and but then i felt the tenderness of god and i felt god looking at me and saying oh asiri why did you have to go through that you know my my problems have become more complex over the years but it has been the same affection and tenderness that has strengthened me through my days jesus says that uh, about the good shepherd when the wolf comes uh, he talks about the hired hand uh when the hired hand when the wolf comes gives up on the sheep uh runs away and then he talks about the good shepherd when trouble comes when disobedience comes when pain comes what does the good shepherd do he does not run away he runs comes into the situation and jesus said he lays down his life for the sheep the word good there in greek kalos can be translated as beautiful one day when my daughter was about i think 2 years ago when she was around 2 years old uh, my my wife asked her uh, what is the most beautiful thing in the world and she said jesus <laughs> we were quite surprised but that is true jesus is beautiful you know lamentations t- teaches us how how i mean there's a whole book in the bible about groaning when hard things happen we groan with god and that's that's a good thing to groan with god and as we cry out to god in tears little by little we realize there's something greater than our circumstances and that is the love of god god's love is bigger than our problems coriton boom and her family they were dutch and they were clockmakers and during the holocaust german uh, holocaust they hid jews in their home and because of that they also coriton uh, boom and her sister betsy were put in a in a in a jewish concentration camp where they suffered horrible things they were stripped naked and the guards did terrible things to them they were beaten in the process betsy died but cory made it through and made it made it alive after world war 2 and one day she was preaching uh, i think the gospel and then after the message this man came up to her and it was one of the and then she she recognized it was one of the guards 
in, in that camp who had done terrible things to them. And then she remembered her sister. And, and this guard has now become a Christian and he, and he said, will you forgive me? And then he, she's, she, she was talking to God and said, how can I forgive? I can't forgive. And then she remembered Romans chapter 5 verse 5. How God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then, and then she said, uh, what she did was, you know, she was overcome by the truth. And then she, she told the guard, give me your hand. And she stretched out her hand and held it. And she said what felt like an electrical surge going through her. She felt God's love just going through her into that man. And she writes, for a long moment we grasped each other's hands. The former God, the God, and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Graham Kendrick writes, writes a beautiful song which I hear my, used to hear my father playing on the piano. Uh, oh Lord, your tenderness, taking away all my bitterness. Oh God, I receive your love. My friends, the most important thing about our lives is that Jesus loves us and we must receive that love. Then in verse 2, uh, Paul goes on to say, complete my joy. Uh, the words for joy and rejoicing come 16 times in the four chapters of this small letter written by prison, written in prison. This is the joy that comes from being grace. We're all, we're, what, what is grace? When all we deserve is hell, we received a gift that we don't deserve. A great price was paid, blood was shed, but for us, it comes as a free gift. Grace is God's free gift to us. Free forgiveness that comes overflowing into our lives. It's free for us, but at a big cost for Christ. But it comes overflowing. Uh, I love to go to uh, the high mountains, and one of my, I, I go with my one of my colleagues. We go to this uh, waterfall, and we sit under the waterfall, and we have this water coming down on us. It's such great pressure that you know it's so strong. In fact, grace is like that. If you are weighed down by your sin today, remember God's grace is greater than your sin. There is free forgiveness for you. It's the most joyful, joyful, beautiful thing in the world. The Greek words for grace, charis and joy, kara, all come from the same root. Leon Morris was a great theologian said his definition of grace was that which causes joy. Uh, the first time I experienced this, this kind of joy uh, was when I was doing my A-levels. Um, I, I did maths, physics and chemistry for my A-levels. Maths and physics I really enjoyed. But chemistry I struggled because well, the teacher used to speak so fast in Sinhalese and I couldn't follow and I, I just really struggled. <laughs> and, and, and one day I did 
the, the final exam, the A-level exam, which is one of the most uh, life-transforming exams that we do, I did that, I did my chemistry paper, and I came back home, and I cried and cried and cried for the first time over my studies because I thought I had failed. And now the day of the results came. I, I didn't want to go, but I just went, and, and I realized that something has happened in the marking scheme and I think a problem had happened and for some reason they had passed, they had put the pass mark for chemistry from down from 30, it had come down to some 20 or something. Now this is very embarrassing for me to tell you, right? Anyway, I looked at the results, I had passed and I was so filled with joy at that moment. I was, it was like I was jumping like a monkey. I mean, there were, there, there were boys who had worked hard and got A's for chemistry. They were happy. But I had joy because I got something I didn't deserve. Then how great the joy when I realized a sinner like me who should rightfully be in hell has been raised up with Christ. And he's now seated in the heavenly places with him. This is the joy, my friends. This is Christian joy, unlike no other joy in the world. That's, this is the joy that strengthens us to take up the cross. It strengthens us to forgive and reconcile. This joy is so important for us that we must fight for it no matter what the cost. Uh, David Sitton was uh, the founder of To Every Tribe and Mission. He said when he was a young man, uh, an old missionary, 90 years old, came to their youth group. And so, uh, so sorry, he, he was very old and he had been a missionary, uh, or he was 90 years old and he had been a missionary since he was 18. So, so, he, so they were waiting to hear his wisdom. So he started talking. And uh, during his speech, he kept saying this one thing. He said, you can, you can forget everything I have said, but don't get, forget this one thing. And he kept saying that, you can forget everything, don't forget this one thing. So they were like, tell it, tell it. And finally, he said it. He said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When the joy goes, the strength goes. So, my first point in my message is, oh, is, a, is a prayer. Oh, may God open the eyes of the church to see the wonder of the gospel. And now we come to the second verse. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul has been talking about joy, but now he says, my joy will be completed if you are one. But what Paul is saying is look how much God has done for you. That's in the first verse. If he has done so much for you, now be one. Imagine God coming to your church or maybe even running like that father in the prodigal son story. He runs and he comes and hugs all of us together. How can we have enmity against each other when we are all under so great a love. On the contrary, his love brings us together. My mother used to tell me how, how the church is like, uh, go, uh, the church is like living in Noah's ship. 
Have you ever thought about what it's like to would, what would it have been like to be in that ship? All the chaos with so many animals. It would have been so smelly. It's so loud and all the sounds and the smell. It would have been utter chaos. Well, the church is like that ship. But we stick together because outside the ship is judgment. Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 27, uh, Paul says a beautiful thing. He says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. He, he's saying that we, have, we are wearing Christ like a garment. And then he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, listen to the words here. He doesn't say, oh, yes, there's Jew, there's Greek, there's male, female. We are all, you know, different. But, but he doesn't say that. He says, neither, no more Jew nor Greek. This is not unity in diversity. If it was unity in diversity, he said, you know, we are all different, but we are one. But he says, no more. He says, we have been baptized into Christ and now we have put on Christ. This is unity in oneness. Now our identities as male or female are important. But when we are together, we hold lightly to these identities because we have put on Christ. So when I see my Tamil brother in Christ, I don't see a Tamil Christian. I see someone who, just like me, is clothed in Christ. Our unity is in oneness. We are one. Unity is often the trigger for revival and sometimes the result of revival. Samuel Ganesh was an uh, evangelist and one day, um, in fact, he was a translator to this Ugandan Bishop Festo Kivengere who was preaching in South India. And so one day Samuel Ganesh was, his, was acting as his interpreter. Now while the sermon was going on, Samuel Ganesh, he felt convicted of the need to make peace with the person in the audience. He took leave from the preacher in the middle of the sermon and he went to the audience and he made peace. This triggered a process of person after person making peace with each other. Revival had come. There was no need to complete the sermon. So Bishop Festo left the room for the spirit to do its work, his work. If you need to reconcile with a brother or sister, if you need to reconcile with your husband or your wife, don't wait a moment. Do it. Life is fleeting. It will soon be over. Be one and serve God together. In John 17, in the summit of Jesus' prayer, John's, uh, Jesus prays to the Father, Oh God, that, that they may be one as we are one. And then he says that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them as you have loved me. Why one? So that the world may know. This is Paul's burden too. That they will be not afraid to proclaim the gospel. 
that they will be willing to even suffer so that the, so they so that the lost will know Christ but that can only happen if we are in one mind together and that is my second point which is my second prayer oh that we would be united in our call to proclaim the gospel oh that every methodist church will have a united strategy to reach the lost in your area in for in fact almost every one of us god has called to different vocations where you may be surrounded by people who need the love of christ how can we as a church encourage one another to embrace a life of love and not just love people need to know what jesus has done for them on the cross our guilt removed sin atoned for free forgiveness these truths can only be proclaimed with the mouth only if we tell people will they know it oh may this be the burden of our prayer that we would know the love of christ and with one mind boldly proclaim this beautiful gospel to a lost generation uh, marian adlard was a bedridden girl she was bedridden because of a medical condition and one day she was she was in england and she was looking uh, at this magazine and she read about uh, dl moody who had had a uh, i think about here it, it was written about his ministry among children and then she felt in her heart that she wants dl moody to come to that church in england dl moody was in chicago and so she cut that piece of paper kept it under her pillow and daily she prayed oh lord send this man to our church and in 1871 there was a great fire in chicago that actually uh, dl moody's church also was burnt and i think dl moody was so discouraged that he wanted to you know take a break and he wanted to he he actually went took a ship and sailed to england and he decided you know he's not going to preach or do anything uh but then while he was in england uh someone saw him and invited him to that church and it was marian adlard's church so one evening as dl moody was preaching uh after he preached he gave an invitation to everyone to come and receive christ uh and he told them to stand up and the whole church stood up and dl moody thought oh, well that's a bit unusual uh, maybe they didn't understand what i was saying and so then he explained the gospel again and he told if there's anyone who wants to receive christ uh come forward and they all came forward i i i think that's the second time they came forward anyway then later he said uh, he was very confused at what was happening he said then he explained again he said if if you really want to receive christ go to the adjoining room and then they everyone went to the adjoining room and then dl moody he thought you know he needs to explain properly and he, then he talked about repentance and he was explaining everything and he said you know if you really want to wholeheartedly give your life to christ then come the next day to the, the, the this place and then dl moody he 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 took a ship and he he left i think it was either to ireland or scotland and as he was leading uh, leaving he got a telegram 
from the pastor of this church. It was the next day. And the pastor said, you must come back at once. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who have come to church. And this, what, what transpired would become the greatest revival in Great Britain since John Wesley preached 130 years earlier. And it was all triggered by the persevering prayer of bedridden Marian Adlard. My friends, salvation is the work of God. And if it's God's work, then we must pray that God would do his work. George Muller, uh, who championed the cause of the poor, he rescued hundreds of children from the streets of, I, I think it was London, and he gave them a place to stay. That was his life's work. He, he decided that he, uh, one day he decided that he's going to pray daily for five friends who didn't know Christ. And so he prayed every day for these five friends. Eighteen months later, the first person became a Christian. And five years later, the second person became a Christian. He continued to pray daily for the last three. And six years later, the third person became a Christian. Thirty-six years later, he had been still praying daily. He, he told someone he had still been praying daily for these last two people. And just before he died, the fourth person became a Christian. And after he died, the fifth person became Christian. Persevering prayer. He not only prayed, when he was 70 years old, he decided that he wanted to spend the rest of his life as an itinerant evangelist, which he did till he was 87 years old, telling as many people as he could about the good news of Jesus. Uh, Dr. Arul Ankitel from Sri, Sri Lanka said, God's love once you've experienced it, you want to sing. It's fresh like spring. You want to pass it on. This is why John Wesley, in fact, had a spring in his step after Aldersgate. Uh, Lindsay Brown uh, said uh, how he was once going through the journals of John Wesley. And he noticed at the end of each, what he had written every day, at, at the end of it, it said, it, it said almost every day, I offered Christ to people today. I offered Christ to people today. I offered Christ to people today. And sometimes it read, I offered grace in Christ to people today. I want to close uh, by going to Exodus 33. Israel had sinned against God with the golden calf. Moses is now pleading with God on their behalf. And in his, while he's pleading, he suddenly says, Lord, show me your glory. And then God responded, saying, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. I want to pray this prayer now for us. Oh God, would you show this generation